We can actually feel other people's feelings inside ourselves as though they were our own and uh, broaden our horizons. And so it also has political possibility. Hello and welcome to Tender Buttons, a podcast chatting to artists and writers about their process and politics with me, Jessica Andrews, and my co-host, Jack Young. If you'd like to buy any of the books from today's episode, as a listener of the show, you can get a 10% discount by entering Tender Buttons at the StorySmith checkout. You can find them online at storysmithbooks.com or visit them in person on North Street in Bedminster. In this month's episode of Tender Buttons, we welcome Noir Al-Sadir, Noelle Sadir is a poet and psychoanalyst. She's the author of the poetry book's fourth person singular, which was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award in Poetry and the Forward Prize for Best Collection, and More Shadow Than Bird, as well as the non-fiction book Animal Joy, which came out this year in the UK with Fitzgerald Editions and in the US with Grey Wolf Press. Claudia Rankine said of Animal Joy that to read it is to become alive to the condition of wakefulness in the world. I can think of no other contemporary work of non-fiction that brings together autobiography, a learned history of psychoanalysis, lyrical poetics, ontological investigations of our attempt to manage our own feelings with such astute engagement. This is a work that will change conversations about who we are, what we think motivates us, what makes us, us. Hi Noir, welcome to Tender Buttons. Thank you for having me. We're really excited to chat to you about your work and I thought we might set things up by talking about clowning and I wondered if you could just explain what clowning is for our listeners who might not have come across it before. I came across it because I was doing research for my book and I was thinking a lot about not just laughter but spontaneous outbursts of laughter and I went to all sorts of um events and I wanted to not only see what made me laugh but to observe the audience and see what made the audience laugh so I went to stand-up I went to storytelling improv shows and what I started to notice was that the audience seemed to laugh more when something was honest than when it was funny and I, I, I also noticed that if the same anecdote or speech had been in a different frame, say in the frame of a therapy session, it wouldn't have been funny at all. It would have been poignant or emotional. And so as I was trying to explore this trigger for laughter, someone said, you should, you should look at clown. And in the clown community, we don't call it clowning. We call it clown. Um, I know that sounds grammatically odd to most people, but um, someone suggested that I try a workshop and I did a one day workshop and it was confusing. It was hard to follow. It was interesting, but I didn't really get a good sense of it. So I decided to do a two week workshop with Christopher Bayes, who teaches at Yale and is someone who studied with Lecoq and Gaulier, who are the clown masters. And that was very 
um, illuminating to say the least. And what we were doing, I was the only non-actor in the program, is we were both on stage and acting as the audience. And the goal in various exercises was always to make the audience laugh. But you couldn't make the audience laugh by trying to be funny or saying what you thought they would find funny. It was the, the trick was to connect with yourself so that you were having an honest emotion, they would sense that honesty and recognize it with laughter. But they wouldn't laugh because it was funny or humorous. I wonder whether, um, just in the spirit of setting up some of these key concepts and terms for those who might not have come across them that are listening and uh, they might not have read Animal Joy yet, can you speak about the... Derek Winnicott and the true self and false self weaves its way throughout Animal Joy, and I feel and is connected to the the clown clowning and the way you talk about clowning in the book. Could you explain those concepts a little for those that haven't come across them? Sure, and I'll also say for those who haven't come across the book or me that I'm a psychoanalyst as well as a writer. So mm. the connection to Winnicott was made by me. It's not a connection in clown. Yeah, and yeah. Mm-hmm. the the connection as I see it is um, well. Let me explain Winnicott's idea. So Winnicott has this idea of the true and false self. He thinks that there's a true self in each of us. We're born with it, and an infant. He has a model of an infant with the mother, an infant whose spontaneous gestures are affirmed by the mother will feel encouraged to let themselves express themselves freely to be who they are whereas an infant whose spontaneous gestures are corrected because they're weird or the mother doesn't like them or the sounds are culturally associated with negative things will learn not to express what they're feeling but to give the mother what the mother wants from them in order to get affirmation or love and care because, of course, the infant is dependent on their caregiver. And Winnicott uses mother, which is why I'm using mother. Of course, I recognize that it doesn't have to be a mother. So when your spontaneous gestures are affirmed, you feel free to express yourself more and to be who you are and to let your true self out. And the true self is that um, spontaneous wellspring of creative energy. And when you give people what they want from you in order to be rewarded, whether by love or care, then that's how your false self gets strengthened. And we all have false selves. You need one to go out into the world. You can't just express yourself freely at all times in society. But sometimes if you develop a really strong false self, you can lose contact with the true self. And the tricky part is that many of the things that we're rewarded for in our lives are false self uh, gestures or behaviors. And uh, so there's a lot of incentive to strengthen your false self, but not as much incentive to strengthen your true self. Yeah, yeah. And I wonder around that, there's a quote that you um, 
Christopher Bay's something I'll just quote from now, which says the social contract on the subway, there being no eye contact, don't take up space. I want you to be more. You can be less if you're going to sell real estate, but not if you're going to be an artist. It demands that you live hotter. And so I wondered about like, yeah, for you, the role of like art making and living hotter and exploring this true self. When I just said, unless you're a clown, I was about to say, or a poet or an artist. I, there are areas where living hotter and expressing your true self are valued. There are, there are definitely places, um, communities you can turn to. The dominant culture tends to reward our, our work for society. And a lot of that is really good and meaningful, but it doesn't necessarily involve expressing our true self. And it's not that we have to 24-7 express our true self, but you, you do have to make sure that you have contact with it. The danger is losing contact. I think um, following on from that, you write really interestingly about um, how within that we all follow these social scripts all of the time, but how humour especially is a way to disrupt the social script. Like if someone, if someone was to just burst out laughing now and it felt strange and weird, it's kind of suspending the social norms that we're adhering to. Um, and I wondered what it was that interested you about that or, or kind of what your thoughts on it are? My term, the social, the term I'm using of social scripts comes from Sylvan Tompkins. And the idea is that there are these scripts that exist in the world. And when we move through the world without realizing it, we enter a script and our unconscious is signaled to take up a position and we don't realize the position we're taking up or the role that we're playing. We do, this all happens unconsciously. It, when you become more aware of the social scripts, it's easier to disrupt them. And part of what clown does or psychoanalysis does is to try and identify those scripts. Or in psychoanalytic terms, you want to figure out the autopilot patterns you operate by and gain awareness of them so that you make the unconscious conscious. And once you become conscious of these patterns, rather than acting on autopilot, you can have awareness in the moment of what's going on, what pathway you're about to, or moving walkway you're about to step onto, and you can choose not to or make a different choice or take a different path. And then you have conscious control over your existence. I mean, not only in that moment, but beyond. Carl Jung says, until you make the con unconscious conscious, it will direct your life and you'll call it fate. Yeah, kind of keeping on, on the laughter. Another thing that I found interesting is you mentioned at one point in Animal Joy about humour, like can have this ability to break through kind of interpersonal like impasses. So with the example of how say, I don't know, around political campaigning, how pushing facts down people's throat doesn't work, but laughter can lift barriers between people. So I wondered about the role of humour in that respect as like a way of a method of connection across sometimes hostile barriers. 
Unconscious communication is a form of communication that is as present as linguistic communication, but we tend to value verbal communication over other forms of communication. So sometimes when we're communicating verbally, we're also communicating non-verbally always, but it, there can be moments when you can sidestep the verbal battle and try to communicate in another way and communicate more fully. In psychoanalysis, unconscious communication is as important as the words mm. that someone says. You're always trying to attend to what's happening um, at, at other levels, and unconscious communication is usually transmitted through the body. And the true self, according to Winnicott, is also in the body or body-driven. And maybe it's it's the impasse is created by focusing too much on only one level and mm. blocking out the other levels. So it would probably be a move like if you were adjusting a stereo speaker where you include the other levels more so that you're not only hearing the verbal communication speaker play. I wondered as well if we could come to like your very expansive idea in Animal Joy of like the poetic sense or poetry. Because um, there's a point at which you quote Roland Barthes and he described the sentence as like hierarchical with subjections, subordinations, internal reactions and how to write poetry is to write outside the sentence and to take pleasure in the text. But in Animal Joy, it feels like you go further and kind of expand the notion of poetry beyond kind of like writing on the page or what appears to be a poem on the page or prose. And you quote something uh, described as like a universal poetic sense that is a kind of transformative feeling that creates in the recipient. So I wondered if you could yeah, talk to this like expansive idea of poetry that you explore in, in Animal Joy. One question I always ask is, if you want to communicate meaning, why write in poetry? Why do people write poetry instead of writing prose in sentences? Uh, the sentence grammatically has to have a point, and it, it, there are certain requirements that it needs to have to be correct or legible, but in poetry, you don't have to submit to those rules. The, the reason why I would say I enjoy poetry and write poetry and what I consider to be poetry has to do with what is communicated unconsciously. So communication occurs, as I was saying, on multiple levels. And with poetry, I feel like I know I'm in the presence of poetry when I feel moved. So what does it mean to feel moved? Something happens in my body. And my understanding of it is when you reading a poem, let's say, and you feel moved, you, your mirror neurons fire, you recognize the feeling that is being expressed 
by the writer and you, you feel it inside yourself as though it were your own. And mm. that's what happens when your mirror neurons fire. The interesting things, thing about, the interesting thing about mirror neurons is that the same mirror neurons fire, whether the experience is originating inside of you or whether you're witnessing someone else's experience. So it is truly your feeling once you feel it, even if it was triggered by witnessing someone else's feeling. And that way it gives us a form of expanding our subject position. We can actually feel other people's feelings inside ourselves as though they were our own and uh, broaden our horizons. And so it also has political possibility, um, individual person possibility. Related to that, something that I thought was really fascinating um, was this idea of screen memories. And you talk about kind of, as a kind of trauma response, we sort of repress certain memories, but they kind of recur in particular images. And I think you gave the example of um, like really remembering the image of leaves on a, in, in a particular gutter and not really understanding why. And then later you like sort of understood that someone you'd known at school died in a storm and she'd lived near that, near where that street was. So you'd kind of substituted the emotion for the image. Is that right? Um, let me slow that down and I'll explain yeah. screen memories. They're really fascinating. Um, I think you basically got it right though, just to, <laughs> just to answer your question. A, a screen memory is a memory that is filtered. Essentially, what happens is, I, I can, in order to explain this, I have to explain Freud's idea of how dreams work. So basically, yeah. with, with a dream, there's the latent content and the manifest content. So the manifest content is what's on the surface, like let's say a horse. And the latent content is the emotional meaning that's attached to mm -hmm. the horse. And Freud thought that there is a dream sensor that detaches the latent content from the manifest content so that the manifest content is free to go into the dream, whereas the latent content, the emotional meaning, gets suppressed. And that way you stay asleep because the purpose of dreams is to keep you asleep so that you're able to um, restore all of your physiological functions, psychological functions. So essentially, the, the latent content when it's in the dream has its meaning, but without the emotional weight. So you can dream about the horse that might be upsetting without getting upset because the upset feeling has been detached from it. And something similar happens with a screen memory. So in a screen memory, you essentially detach the upsetting part of an image from or a memory from a part that is neutral, that stays in your head with you so that you can think back and you 
you don't have the feeling that was upsetting. You just have the memory that you have, that has been detached from it, the manifest content. So it's, it's a way of not carrying around really upsetting things that would get in the way of our functioning. It's a survival mechanism, essentially. So in the example I gave, it, it was of leaves in a gutter on a specific street in the neighborhood I grew up in that come to mind in certain moments. I just see the leaves. Mm. No feeling really attached to them, but the leaves, the leaves come up like meaning, but there is no clear meaning to them. And psychoanalysis believes that you can unpack that kind of meaning by following a trail of associations. So I tried to unpack that meaning. And what I came up with, I'm summarizing, I'm not giving you all the associations and work, was essentially that the leaves were on my walk home from school on the same block that someone in at my school lived in who had been in a sailing accident and she had survived and her father had been the one who had died. And so when the leaves come up, I think it's the feeling of having learned that that is coming up, not simply, not the leaves themselves, but the leaves have taken the place of that mm feeling, being upset for her, the worry, what it would feel like to lose my father and to be fatherless. And I, mm. I link it to a sense of forlornness, which Sartre mm. quote, quotes from Heidegger, which is realizing that there is no God and you have to face the world on your own. I think that would be the sense I have that goes along with the leaves. I, I think it's really interesting to think about that in terms of writing, because you are also a poet. And do you think, do we, do our brains work in a similar way when we're writing poetry, for example? Because so much of it is associative or image-based. Is there some kind of link? I that? think so. Do you think? I think psychoanalysis is very similar to process wise to writing poetry can can we touch on that a bit in terms of that process with poetry because as you were describing that i was also having the same thought and thinking about fourth person singular and some of the experiments that you reveal within the collection in terms of um i was particularly struck by there's like the dream fragments section of that book but there's also lots of things which are leakages of an attempt to capture in writing like leakages from the subconscious and one line I remember I've just got written down here which really struck me was dreamt I wrote my autobiography the pages were blank the text in footnotes and so yeah I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your your poetry and, and how it connects the process of that connecting with with some of what we've described about psychoanalysis and the unconscious. Uh, I would love to. I just want to say I'm so grateful to the two of you for reading my work so closely. These questions are so interesting. 
and um, thoughtful, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm touched actually by the care you've put into thinking about my work. So thank you. Yeah. Well, thanks, thanks for the work. <laughs> it's been a very, yeah, real honor it was to read a it. Big this is such a pleasure. Um, so the night fragments from fourth person singular are essentially. It was during a period when I couldn't really write. I wasn't thinking creatively. I was thinking in a very in very rational terms and I really wanted to write and I what I did was this uh, experiment where I would set my alarm for 3 15 a.m every night with a notebook with a pen inside of it marking a page uh, either I mean started off at a bedside table, but it migrated into my bed. And I started using a pen that had a flashlight on it. So I would just click the flashlight mm-hmm. on and write whatever was at the top of my mind when the alarm went off. And I became very good at falling right back to sleep afterwards. Mm-hmm. And what started to happen was I created a pinhole into my unconscious and the voice that seeped out was consistent but it didn't sound like the voice I use in my waking life mm-hmm. I, I didn't know where it came from but I I tapped into it and it eventually uh, restarted my creative thinking my creative speaking inside of my own head and writing. So that was what that experiment was. And it was really a way of saying to myself, well, I feel like nothing is going on. I feel a little bit uh, uncreative, unthoughtful, but I know there's more going on and I just don't have Mm -hmm. access to it. So what can I do to increase access to my unconscious? And that's Mm. a question that's similar to one that people have been asking after Animal Joy came out. They've been asking, okay, let's say you lost contact with your true self. What can you do to regain access to it? It's still there. Mm. It's not like it gets split off or dies but it it may be buried under um, the false self, which has become calcified and thick. So I would say that the same sort of um, attempt to access the unconscious would be a way of trying to access the true self. I've got, I've got two um, questions following on from that. The first is like about your decision to reveal that process as part of the collection, fourth person singular, alongside so many other bits, I'm thinking of, I feel like we could have a whole conversation about redactions, for example, in fourth person singular, which I find like very compelling in that collection. So yeah, I guess the first one is about your decision to reveal that process in a publication, something, you know, which that feels quite intimate in in that text. And then there's a follow up question, I guess, which is uh, writing Animal Joy, which is prose, for me, as an it feels very experimental essay-wise in terms of the associative quality, and I w- wondered about if there were other bits of process that you had in writing *Animal Joy*, which were about yeah, I guess like allowing your the subconscious to leak through in in prose there. 
My first book was a book of poetry called More Shadow Than Bird. And when it came out, uh, my younger daughter, who was just learning to read and write, saw the manuscript. And when she saw the title page, it said, More Shadow Than Bird. And she wrote beneath it, by Noir Al-Sadir, how I love her. And then when the book came out, I gave each of my daughters a copy of the book. And the same daughter said, well, can I do whatever I want with it? And I said, yeah, it's yours. Do whatever you want. And so she wrote in the margins. She crossed things out. She made drawings. And she wrote her own Mm -hmm. book on top of my book. And when I looked at that book... It was so brilliant. And I thought that is really what it often feels like to write a book. It feels like you really, I mean, for me, at least, there are multiple books on top of other books. There's this idea that you're supposed to have central, if it's not an idea, a central force, a central um, soundbite that summarizes what your project is. And so when I wrote Fourth Person Singular, I really took her her method and I combined Mm. it with the layers of consciousness, which was Mm. what I was thinking about at the time, and my writing. And so I wrote a book that was layered in a similar way, even enlisted each of my daughters to give me drawings and there are some drawings in there and the redactions mm-hmm. were uh, really the places where I felt for whatever reason, and nobody understands what makes other people feel shame, but they were mm-hmm. things I really didn't want in the book. Mm-hmm. I thought, well, I'm not going to just take them out because this has meaning and it's meaningful within the book, but maybe what mm. I'll do is I'll redact it, or some things are semi-redacted or part redacted. The but I left the text beneath it because I thought it would still emit its meaning, even if it wasn't legible. Those sections I don't have any meaning. They don't have meaning to me. In other words, like I wouldn't feel shame or that I was embarrassed about them. But what does embarrass me about a text I've written or make me feel shame is often very personal. An outsider wouldn't look at it and understand Mm. why it would be shameful because it's all within my own constellation of meaning. So that book was written that way. And then with Animal Joy, what happened was I was working on a book and it was about laughter. It was a straightforward book about laughter and I'd done a lot of research and it was on a computer that crashed and I didn't have it backed up. So I lost everything. And then Mm -hmm. once I lost it, after I got over the devastation, I realized that it offered me an opportunity because I wasn't really writing the kind of book I wanted to write because I'm a poet first, and I wanted to write a creative book. So having done 
most of the research. I was then free to write a book I wanted to write, but in a creative way. And the book is essentially multiple books on top of one another in the same mm. way fourth person singular has multiple texts on top of one another. And I've allowed myself to weave the threads together associatively, not mm. in a linear way that creates meaning that is traceable uh, chronologically. And the section breaks are marked with Liban notation, which are choreography symbols. So what I did was I used the symbol which would indicate the way a certain part of the body would move as though I could graft the mind onto the body. And I was looking at the way the mind was moving between sections and imagining mm. how that would look if it were be moves made by the body. I used to be a dancer, mm. so I saw mm. this as a book that was choreographed rather mm. than organized. That's fascinating. Yeah, the the I didn't know about the the choreograph is a a lovely layer that I now have. I just wondered if we could think about the body more generally because I know you write about the way that um our feelings or, or emotions are like instinctive things that come from the body. And then when we kind of enforce thought on them, some of that connection is lost. And I just wondered if you could talk about the role of the body or kind of embodied experience in your work and ideas. I, again, I think that thoughts and ideas are one mode of processing and there are all these other modes that are equally important. For example, if someone is, has experienced trauma, most trauma is lodged in the body and the limbic system tends to be the part of the brain that controls it. And when you're in your trauma, the frontal lobes, which control rational, logical thinking, go offline. And so to ask someone to be rational when their trauma has been triggered wouldn't make sense. But it doesn't mean that that person can't make sense or can't communicate or make meaning or uh, connect with another, but you can't force them to connect in a way that isn't going to be accessible in that moment. I think there are so many areas of life that we would benefit from incorporating other modes of processing and understanding into. I mean, education is another. There's a traditional way that meaning is delivered and a student is supposed to learn, but people have different cognitive styles and there's now more acceptance of the idea of neurodiversity. There are different ways of coming to that knowledge and yeah. understanding it. And the more we can accept those variations, the more we can increase our ways of 
learning, communicating, connecting, feeling valued, alive, mm. authentically who we are. With that last word you used, alive, I wondered if we could come to a phrase that comes up, which I've thought about nonstop since, which is the destructive aliveness that you mention in Animal Joy. Um, for those, again, for those who haven't read Animal Joy or come across that phrase, could you um, expand on destructive aliveness as it relates to your work in Animal Joy and, and living? Destructive aliveness comes from Winnicott. He has a paper, The Use of an Object. Basically, um, how to summarize, he's talking again about a mother and an infant and Essentially, the infant will be ruthless to the mother, destructive. And if the mother responds by being ruthless and kind, putting the baby in its place, then the infant will have gotten inside of her head and be controlling her from within which means that the infant can control the mother, which means that the mother is not separate and the mother is not of use. Because the mother can only be of use if the mother is separate and has her own mind mm. and has sovereignty over that mind. Mm. So the ideal thing that the mother would do is to be hurt. And then the infant sees that the mother is hurt and by recognizing that the mother has a different emotion than the infant, the infant mother it will know that the mother is separate. And when she's separate, she can be of use because she knows things the infant doesn't know. And so she can step in and help. Uh, and this can be extrapolated to relationships where it's not an infant and a mother, but part of uh, loving is being separate. And in order to really come together, different people need to be separate and recognize their separateness. And without that separateness, there isn't really a meaningful relationship. That's, that goes in all sorts of directions. Uh, what I take from it is uh, destructiveness and how that's part of making use of another person. I use examples mm. from my daughters. I think it's mm. an overheard conversation I had where one of them said, I can't believe you flushed my barrettes down the toilet. And the other one said, I know, they were so cute. And the other one said, how could you? And the one who flushed the barrettes down the toilet said, I was angry. And it's, it's that way in which they can use each other in their working through of their emotions, but still remain connected and together that is actually healthy mm. and i also draw an analogy to um cultures that believe in setting prescribed fires 
so that there aren't wild ones because prescribed fires can actually set the land on a healthy trajectory um, that protects them from a wildfire that can, you know, be completely destructive like we see here in the United States. And, and so it's, it's counterintuitive that being destructive could be healthy in a relationship. Mm. But it's um, in a very complicated way the case i guess i'm interested in in its connection to your your ideas of like this universal poetic sense or like living the living hotter feeling yeah i think it does connect to that and in the sense also that the person who can tolerate the other's destructive aliveness is someone who can sit with the expressions from their deep interior and mm. not need them to behave in a prescribed way, a scripted mm. way. And that's usually a relationship that's safe, where you're mm. safe to be yourself and have mm. spontaneous expressions. And that's also yeah. the space in which spontaneous outbursts of laughter are most likely to occur. The real mm. like side-splitting fits of laughter generally mm. happen in safe environments and are, are they a kind of like signal of of a of some sort of connection in that respect that is one of the things they can signal they also yeah. happen in the worst possible circumstances like funerals laughter at funerals is very common and freud even writes about that and mm. of course nobody would want to burst into a fit of uncontrollable laughter at a funeral but it's a situation where emotions are high and it's very easy for them to get out of control, which is why for centuries people have hired professional mourners to attend funerals and to cry mm. in a way that directs the crowd's crying because it's infectious the way mm. laughter is infectious in the desired direction. Going back to the idea of the false self, um, I think it's really interesting to think about it in terms of the digital age, as you mentioned, and thinking about how, you know, some, a lot of social media is very much about, especially something like Instagram, I think, like curating this image or, or sense of self that often isn't true and do you think that really perpetuates this like false self true self binary? I think that it is tricky it's like uh people use the expression a brand people have a personal brand and if you have a brand you stay true to your brand but maybe you evolve I, one of the big ideas in fourth person singular is that we're constantly evolving in micro ways every moment. And so to have a brand that you have to stay true to means that you're keeping yourself from growing in the direction you're naturally evolving in in order to present this image. And if the image is from the outside in, then uh, probably doesn't match up 
with what's inside of you, but it's what you get rewarded for. Images on social media that are liked are not always images of people in their authentic being. They're often staged, curated. It makes me think, I'm just thinking about the um, what we were talking about with fourth person singular and your dream fragments and this like attunement, I guess, to to things that might not in the conscious self um, be appealing or part of a curation. And at one point, quite far into Animal Joy, you talk about being needing to be able to receive unconscious transmissions and like hear the music and the others knocking. And I wondered if, yeah, I guess as, as a psychoanalyst and as a poet, like what those things allow for being able to receive those unconscious transmissions. It's attunement. And mm. there, are, there are skills you can develop in order to be more attuned to other people and to the world. Mm. And that is really what clown was about also is letting in the universe he would call it the, uh, letting letting what is outside of you reach you so that mm. you're ta- really taking it in and responding to it rather than having an idea of what your output is going to be and putting it out regardless of mm. what you're receiving so, for example, when when on stage as a clown, you're because you're trying to make the audience laugh, and the audience obviously isn't always laughing. You have to pay attention to what's happening and adjust. So, if the audience isn't responsive, you need to shift. You can't just keep doing what you're doing because it's not working. And one of the really amazing lessons I learned in clown school was that if what to do when you flop. And the idea is if you flop, the best thing you can do is to acknowledge it. And then mm. you'll reach the audience because it's an authentic expression. But if you flop and you try to play it off or... Uh, flip it onto the audience or do something to deny the fact that you are failing, then the audience hates you. And then if you are authentic, they love you again because you're real. Mm. People crave an authentic conversation. Yeah. And I think that paying attention and like uh, this attunement to a different kind of listening and that connection, it feels particularly politically vital in this historical moment that we're living in which you reference in many different moments in animal joy like too many to uh, give examples now but yeah i wondered within the backdrop that we're living in in terms of yeah kind of rising nationalisms you know the eras of trump why is that politically so vital this paying attention this this different kind of listening do you think in part because you need to know what's going on and what's being mm. said and i I also raise the importance to listening to your intuition and how Mm -hmm. intuition is often our highest form of intelligence, but we are so trained to override our intuition with our intellect that you can be taught 
to believe that someone in a certain position is going to be looking out for your well-being, but your intuition may tell you otherwise. And to override that intuition with your intellect would mean to not pick up on what you're picking up on in reality, mm. to mm. fulfill or up, up, what is the word? Um, keep an idea alive rather yeah. than keep yourself alive some of the time. But is there a connection there as well in terms of the risk of like not playing a social script? That we've talked about like yeah the, well the social script some of them are conscious but the kind that i talk about are unconscious the only way you can not take a part in the scripts is to become aware of them so mm. you're making the you have to first make the invisible visible like making mm. the unconscious conscious so that mm. you can become aware of the script and aware of the signal you get to take your position so that mm. when you receive your cue, you make a choice whether or not to take up the role as opposed to doing it in some unknowing autopilot way. Oh, I feel like we could go on for hours, but I know I'm aware of the time. But yeah, thanks so much for our conversation today. It's been really enlightening and inspiring to chat thank to you. you so much and thank you for reading my work so closely and for coming to this conversation with such interesting and engaging and sometimes challenging questions it was really fun if you'd like to keep up to date with tender buttons then you can follow us on twitter and instagram you can find Storysmith Books on North Street in Bedminster, Bristol, and we'll put links to all our references on the episode page online. We'd also like to thank Ben Vince for allowing us to use his music for our theme. Mm-hmm.